0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is a blessing to come to you again uh, to preach God's Word. It's always a blessing to share in God's truth together. Let me get you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 7. So I would encourage you, if you have kids there with you, that you have them open up their Bibles uh, to Romans 1. Even if they're very small, that they would be able to get used to holding God's Word in their hands and reading it and seeing it on the page and seeing their parents read it. So Romans chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. We are continuing in our series in the book of Romans. And our time in Romans so far has been focused on the greeting. And the greeting runs from chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. So the first seven verses of the epistle and these are paul's words to his roman readers those who are in rome the christians in the city of rome these are paul's words of salutation and introduction so he's greeting them but also in this greeting he has the opportunity of introducing things that will follow later in his letter interestingly as i've said before this is the longest and most theologically packed introduction that the Apostle Paul gives in any of his letters so it really does set up for us a number of important themes that we will see as we make our progress through the letter so if you're wondering why we're spending so much time on these words I hope you'll see as we go down this road that there will be much that will point back to these opening verses and these verses can really be divided into three topics or we could say three things that Paul wants to introduce and so here they are the man the message and the mission so in verse 1 we have the man behind the letter and that begins with the word Paul Uh, that uh, idea is introduced there in verse 1 with the word Paul and then we see how Paul describes himself the man behind the letter And then in verses 2 to 4 we have the message in the letter and this is introduced at the end of verse 1 the gospel of god and so verses 2 to 4 go through and explain or describe what this message is what this gospel of god is about and then finally in the greeting we have verses 5 to 7 and in verses 5 to 7 we get the mission of the letter and that's the topic that we're going to be concerned with today and that is the title for today's sermon the mission of the letter and today will be part one as we've done with the others this is a, a pretty robust set of verses and so we want to take our time going through them so today will be the mission of the letter part one and next time we'll come back and finish the greeting with part two this letter itself what we are reading the the, the epistle of romans this letter itself is part of Paul's mission. So it is, it is evidence, it is, a, is con, it is a concrete expression of the very mission that guided and consumed the Apostle Paul's life. And it is here in verses five to seven that he introduces that mission to his readers. And when we look at these verses, we see that Paul outlines his mission In terms of three things and so if you're looking for the points for today's sermon here they are three uh, ways that he outlines this mission first his apostleship second his aim and finally his audience his apostleship his aim and his audience so let's go ahead and read Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 7, and yes, we'll go ahead and read all of that today because it allows us to put all of this in context, and when we continue on uh, next week, we'll read verses 1 to 7 again, and then after that, we'll move on to uh, the next portion of the letter. We're going to read all of the greeting, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, but verses 5 to 7 will be our focus for the next two weeks. This is the Word of God. Paul We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to God in prayer and let's ask for his blessing on this time together let's ask that he will give us clarity about his word there's much to consider here and that god would would help us to live his word to to go out and not just to to hear it and to think on it and mentally assent to it but to live it to have this word become uh, an expression of everything that we do in our lives that that god's word binds us that god's word governs us and so we're going to pray that what God does today through his word will be uh, cataclysmic even in our lives, that God would speak to us today in ways that minister to us, that we will look back on in years to come and we will say, God changed my life. God worked in my life. God turned over a a new stage in my life. He, He brought fresh repentance. He brought fresh faith as we came to his word. And so we're going to ask for that every time we come to God's word. So let's ask for it now. Father, we are so grateful for the scriptures. We're so grateful for how they minister to us and and how they are a means of grace used by the spirit. And we recognize, Father, that during this time, we cannot gather in person but we can meditate together on your word. And it's a beautiful thing to think that gathered all around in homes, all around Noonan and the surrounding area, Lord, that that families are hearing the same scriptures preached, the same verses preached, and that we're all gathering around these words from you, praying that you would use them in wondrous ways, ways that even surprise us this very day and in the days to come. So God, we ask for great things from you as we encounter your revelation, your word. We thank you for the time we have together today around your word. Even though we're not gathered, we can't see each other's faces, but the time we have together to look at these precious truths. And we ask that your spirit would be working in our separate homes We pray that your spirit would be working in the hearts of our kids, that you would settle their minds and help them to hear what is is present here for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we come first to his apostleship. As Paul here uh, introduces his mission with his apostleship, his aim, and his audience, we come first to his apostleship. We have already seen the idea of apostleship when Paul introduced himself back in verse 1. You'll remember, A called to be an apostle. At the very beginning of his letter, he says, Paul called to be an apostle. This is at the very center of Paul's identity, and that's why we remember him. Uh, That's why we remember him as the Apostle Paul. We, We talk about him as the Apostle Paul. That's why we read his letters. And that is what gave him the authority to even write these letters in the first place. He is, he was an apostle. You may remember how we summarized the office of apostle back in verse one. And I'll, I'll go ahead and review that for you just so we have that in view as we come to this portion of the greeting. So, when we introduced the, the office of apostle, we said that it involves election, commission, representation, and proclamation. So, I'm going to go through those very briefly just by way of review. So, election. They are chosen. The apostles are chosen specifically by Jesus himself. And then commission. As they are chosen or when they are chosen, they are sent out on a mission. They are commissioned. And then representation. They go out as Christ's representatives. They go out in his name and in his power. And finally, proclamation. When they go out in his name, in his power sent out by jesus they go out to preach and teach the good news about jesus and not only are they preaching and teaching about jesus but they are preaching as witnesses of the resurrected jesus you'll remember from 1 corinthians 15 how the emphasis there on on the apostles having seen the risen lord so they're not preaching just mere information They are preaching what they have heard and what they have seen, what their hands have handled, to use the words of John in his first epistle. So they are speaking about Christ, about the resurrected Christ, and they are writing about the resurrected Christ. And that's where we get the New Testament. It is the the apostolic witness to the gospel of Christ. So we've already been introduced to this office, but now... In verse 5, Paul returns to the concept of apostle in order to introduce his mission. So look with me, if you will, at verse 5. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So I just want to stop there for a moment and consider this apostleship. But first, a quick note. The we here, it may be a little bit misleading to you, the we here appears to be an editorial plural that really means I. And so that's when Paul says, uh, through whom we have received, he's really just saying I have received. This is a, a letter writing convention. And we would even see this, you may read a book where you see the author Uh, say, we think that dot, dot, dot. And and what they're saying is, I think that the author, but it's an an editorial device. It's a convention in writing. And this was a common practice in writing letters. And so I think we're best to, to take this as I. Paul is talking about himself through whom I have received grace and apostleship. This is Paul's, specifically Paul's ministry apostleship. And it is God's means of carrying forward the mission. Now we have to stop here and consider this. God uses, don't let this uh, pass you by. Don't let this just, just go right over your head. Camp out on this for a moment. God uses human beings to carry out his grand and glorious mission. That the God of the universe, the infinite creator of all, the one true, holy, living God, uses human beings post-fall, post-Adam, sinful human beings, to carry forward his grand mission. What a privilege it is to serve this God in any capacity. Have you lost sight of this privilege as a Christian? You you are not an apostle and I am not an apostle, but we're all Christians and we're all serving in in a kind of ministry. We are all serving this God. And have you lost sight of the wondrous privilege that it is that God would use you, that God would use me to carry forward his Eternal mission. We should be in awe and wonder at that truth. So, there are two big, as we move forward now, there are two big observations that we need to make about this apostleship or about this ministry, this vocation that carries along the mission. So, first, first observation that we need to make is that it is received, it is a gift. And even further, it is a gracious gift. It is undeserved and unearned. The text here could be rendered the grace of apostleship, through whom we have received the grace of apostleship. So this apostleship that Paul has, this, this ministry, this vocation that Paul has, is something that is received, and it is something that is gracious, Paul frequently refers to his ministry in these terms as a gracious gift from God. So I don't want to put too many texts on you, but I do want you to see this as it's emerging in the New Testament. So let me give you a few instances where Paul sees that his uh, apostleship, his ministry is an act of God's grace, that it is a, a gracious gift that God has given him. So 1 Corinthians 15, 10 says... Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, this is an an amazing verse because three times Paul says it is from grace. All that I am doing all that I am writing, all that I am preaching, my office, all of my activities as an apostle, my entire apostleship is grace. And I don't want you to forget it, Paul says, so I'm going to say it three times. Grace, grace, grace. Another important text for this would be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. And there we, we read Paul saying, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent. Opponent. So he, he understands, Paul is very conscious of his prior wickedness. He was very conscious of his sinfulness and his rebellion against God. But this is what he says, but I received mercy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, of whom I am foremost. Paul understood that everything he was, his identity in Christ, his identity as an apostle of Christ was an act of grace, a gift of grace given to him by God. And then we read in this very epistle in Romans, Paul repeats the fact that his apostleship or his authority as an apostle is by grace. So let me give you those two texts here. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. And then he goes on to give instruction. And if you're familiar at all with Romans, Romans chapter 12 is filled with these imperatives. He's he's basically outlining what the Christian life should look like and what a Christian should be doing. And, And he gives this with his authority as an apostle, but he starts by saying by the grace given to me, I say these things. Not just authority in a vacuum, but authority that is built entirely on grace. And then Romans 15, 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So he does not want his readers to forget that in the midst of all the imperatives that he gives as an apostle, He is giving them as one who has been greatly graced by God. There's an implication for us here that I think is really quite massive. And here it is. All of our service is grace to us. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me say it this way. When we serve, when we do anything to serve Uh, any capacity, any, any kind of, when we serve in any capacity, we carry out work for the Lord. This is, this tends to be the way we think. We tend to think that we are doing it to him and for others. So when we serve God, when we serve others, we tend to see ourselves at the center and we tend to see a, an arrow pointing upwards. We are serving God, it's unto God, it's to him, and it's for others. And this is very biblical idea. These, both of these are very biblical ideas. Whatever we do, we do as unto the Lord. And there's that arrow pointing upward. And then we do it for others. We love others. We do the work that we do for the good of other people. And so it is right to see it in these terms. But I want to kind of reverse this a little bit. I want to change our thinking or tweak our thinking or fill out our thinking just a little bit with what we're encountering here. And it's this, that when we serve, what we really need to understand is that we need to flip this and understand that it's not so much that we are serving God and we are serving others, but it is that when we serve, we are experiencing the very grace of God to serve. In other words, our service, our work for the Lord, the things we do for the Lord are themselves gracious gifts from the Lord. To serve God is itself a gracious gift. And maybe this will cut down a little bit on our pride. As we're tempted to, when we do things or when we serve others, we're tempted to, to kind of stack that up in our minds, but maybe instead we'll be more grateful to God that he would give us the grace of being able to do things for his glory and the good of our neighbor. Second, this mystery is through Christ. So we've seen here from the beginning of this verse that it is received. This ministry, vocation, this apostleship of Paul is received as a gracious gift. But secondly, we see that this ministry is through Christ, through whom we have received. Through Christ. Paul's calling and work are gifts from God mediated through Christ everything he is everything he does must be traced back through the son of God in power through Jesus Christ our Lord everything moving through Christ and what this means really is dependency and power if everything is mediated through Christ, then that leaves us, and it left Paul, in a place of dependency, but also a place of power. You see this, I think, in two, you see it all over the New Testament, but here are two texts where you see this dependency and power. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul is dealing with his thorn in the flesh. It's unclear what that is, but But he prays to the Lord Jesus to take it away. And Jesus says this to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. And what that reminds us of is that that grace is flowing through Christ. It is coming to Paul through Christ. It is empowering him even in his weakness. And it is something upon which he must depend. We see this also in John chapter 15. Verse 5, this was the first passage that I preached when I came to Four Corners about five years ago. I, I started with John chapter 15, verse 1, and I remember so clearly working through those verses. And, and one of the most powerful verses, I think, that we have in the New Testament for, for the Christian life is John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says this, apart from me, you are the branches can do nothing. Everything comes from God through Christ. It flows through Christ. There is dependency and power apart from Christ, apart from receiving what we are and do from him. We are absolutely unable to do anything that is truly eternal and worthwhile. I want us to see, too, that it is focused and exclusive. As we think about it being through Christ, we think about it being dependent and empowered, but we also see it as focused and exclusive. If the gift is, hear this, if the gift is from God through Christ to Paul, then all of Paul's service must be back through Christ to God. It is a focused path, whether it is from God to us or or from us to God. It is always passing through Christ. It is always mediated through Christ. That is to say that the road to or from God is always through Christ. It is not a generic devotion to a generic God but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one from whom we receive, and he's the one to whom we direct all of our work and all of our service, and whether it is coming from him or going back to him, it is always through Christ. Let me say it this way. If we're not doing it through Christ, we're not doing it for God. There may be some confusion here, especially as regards people in other religions. Maybe people in Judaism, for example, who, who say that they worship the God of Abraham or even others from other religions or or folks who, who just kind of have a generic idea of God. We may see them go and do good deeds, but we can never say that what they are doing is for God or to God unless it is through in the name of Christ. I think this also tells us that in our own service to God, the things that we do, the the disciplines that we cultivate, uh, the ways that we love other people, the ways that we worship our God, that that it is important that we always consciously do those things in the name of Christ, that we always do them through Christ. We are giving thanks to God through Christ. There is a a Christ-centeredness. There must be a Christ-centeredness centeredness to all of our worship, all of our service, all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Christ is at the center. So that's one aspect of the mission that we have here, his apostleship, the ministry of apostleship, which Paul has graciously received from God through Christ. So that was our first point for uh, this morning is his apostleship. But now we go to our second point, and that is his aim. What is the purpose of apostleship? What is the purpose of all Christian ministry for that matter? Or let me ask it more specifically, what is the purpose of our church? You know, as we think about Four Corners Church, we ask the question, you know, often as elders, we as we came up with our vision statement and as we we oversee the various ministries of the church and as we engage with those who lead those ministries, as we have our elders meetings, it is important for all of us to constantly be asking, what is the purpose of our church? And I know that churches, and we've done the same, come up with a purpose statement or a vision statement, but any purpose statement any vision statement or mission statement of a church must always go back to what we're going to see here in a moment. What is the purpose of our church? What is the purpose? What is the aim of this mission that goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation, really? But here we're looking at the Apostle Paul going all the way back to the work and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Well, here Paul gives us the answer. Look at the rest of verse 5. He says that this apostleship that he has, this gracious apostleship that he has received, is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, You see how Paul just stacks up these phrases and these words. It's one of the reasons why people have taken so long to preach through Romans. And you may be saying why, why we're taking so long to get through even these opening verses or why commentaries on Paul's letters are so large is just think about all that is packed into these, this very short space, these, these very few phrases to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, Among all the nations. What we have here is one purpose for a greater purpose. We're back to the word here for our point, his aim. What we have here is one immediate aim in order to meet an ultimate aim. So we have two aims here one that's immediate and then one that is ultimate. So we're going to take a little bit of time to look at both of these. So, first, the immediate aim. The immediate aim is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And actually, among all the nations goes with the obedience of faith. We have it here in the original language. It reads, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Obedience of faith. This idea is how Paul chooses to both begin and end his letter. It's very interesting. In the epistle to the Romans, he he begins in the opening verses, and in the final verses, he mentions that this is to bring about the obedience of faith. So chapter 16, verse 26, there it is, to bring about the obedience of faith. So we know this is a key concept for the apostle. Scholars, have debated what is meant by the obedience of faith. And frequently what you will find in commentaries, and, and I think this is a good thing because there is the desire to be as precise as possible. And we're so thankful for those brothers uh, who who write these commentaries that are so uh, precise and that take so much time and expend so much labor to delineate the fine points uh, of, the, of the grammar and of the syntax. But scholars have debated, debated precisely what is meant by the obedience and faith, uh, of faith. And sometimes uh, two ideas really that can go together are, are, are kind of opposed to one another. Oftentimes you will find in, in commentaries that scholars will say, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this, it could be that. And, and they'll have to fall down on one of them rather than, rather than seeing maybe a couple or two or three of them as aspects or facets of what we find. And I think that's the case here. It seems to bring together this idea of the obedience of faith, which is the immediate aim of Paul's ministry of the mission. It seems to bring together a couple of ideas that exist side by side simultaneously. And so here we go. Two ideas packed into this notion of the obedience of faith. Idea number one, That faith itself, whereby one is saved or whereby one becomes a Christian, is understood in terms of obedience or submission to the Lord. And if you are understanding it in this way, you could translate this, the obedience that is faith. So when Paul says that his immediate aim is the obedience of faith, he is saying the obedience that is faith. So let me show you where I think this comes from uh, elsewhere in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 10, verse 16. Notice what Paul says here. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's speaking about Israel, the nation. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So notice that He's, he's kind of equating obedience and belief. So to obey the gospel is to believe the gospel. They have not believed the gospel. They have not obeyed the gospel. We see this same idea in the very next chapter, Isaiah, uh, Romans 11, verses 23 and 30. So Paul describes there that Israel is largely in a state of unbelief, which he then in verse 30 says is a state of Disobedience. So they're kind of equating the two that, that unbelief can be understood as disobedience. and going back to the previous uh, passage, disobedience to the gospel. Disobedience to the gospel, unbelief. And I think what we have here is the image of a parent calling a child. So you imagine a parent going outside on, on the front porch and the child is over on the side of the house and the parent says, Uh, so-and-so come here, and the child then either comes and hears and listens to, same idea of obey, to listen to, the child uh, submits to his or her parent's voice, listens to it, and comes when he or she hears the voice. The same is true of God. God. God is issuing a call to the world, the call to come to Christ, the call to believe in His Son. And when that call to believe goes out, Some obey the gospel and they come and believe in Jesus. They listen to, they hear that call and put their trust in Christ and others do not. So the call to Christ, the call to trust Christ is either obeyed or it is disobeyed. Now this is is very interesting for the topic of apologetics. And we'll get to this, I think, later when we come to uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and following. And here's the big point I want to make. Unbelief is a matter of the will. Sometimes in apologetic circles, uh, people will will give the impression that if only we can bring the right arguments, if only we can somehow help people to, to, to be convinced intellectually that the tomb was empty, or help them to be convinced intellectually that the world itself points to a designer, uh, that there is a, there's clearly purpose and design in the world. Uh, sometimes apologetic literature will suge- seems to suggest that if we can only bring the right arguments forward, we can convince individuals intellectually to trust Christ, to come to Christ, to set aside their objections, and to believe. But when we see here this notion of the obedience of faith, we, we find that unbelief is a matter of the will. People do not believe in Christ. They do not trust Christ because they do not want to trust Christ, because they do not want to submit to Christ. So obedience and faith here understood together and in some ways equated as we read it here in in Paul's language. So that's idea number one. Now we come to idea number two, and this is closely related to the first. So once again, we're unpacking this idea of the obedience of faith. We're saying, look, this is the aim. This is his aim. Paul, as he's writing, he's saying this is his aim. The the immediate aim that he's after is the obedience of faith. Idea number one is that it is in, in some way kind of equated with faith. To obey, to submit, is to believe. To believe is to submit and to obey. But here's idea number two. An ongoing life of faith is one characterized by obedience. And so we could render it this way, the obedience that flows from faith. And that's exactly what Paul wants to encourage the Roman Christians in. As he writes this letter, they are believers. They have already obeyed the gospel in the sense that we just discussed. They've already come to faith in Christ. They have already listened to the call, by God's grace, listened to the call, and they've come to believe in Christ as God's Son, as the Messiah. But he wants them now, that they have believed, to continue in that Obedience, a life of faith, a life of obedience, the obedience that flows from that faith. And I think we see this playing out in Romans chapter 6, and we will get there. I don't know when, but we will get there. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 18. I want to read these verses and I want you to see how obedience is functioning here. He says, What then? He's just described God's grace to us. He says, What then? Are we to sin? because we are not under the law, under law, but under grace, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin, listen to this, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, they, they have already become obedient by embracing the gospel, but now they are to present themselves to righteousness and to a life of obedience. They are not to obey sin, but they are to obey Christ. They are to obey righteousness. They are to live a life of obedience that flows out of that faith, that initial obedience, whereby they were saved. So what does this tell us? Well, I think it tells us the same thing that we learned from the life of Noah and Abraham. So here Paul is giving us a phrase, and elsewhere in Romans 6, he's explaining it. But he's helping us to understand a truth that was illustrated for us back when we were going through Genesis. And I think particularly in the life of Noah and Abraham. We saw there the relationship between obedience and faith. They believed, they obeyed. These two woven together as I want to give you a quote here from Thomas Schreiner uh, that I think brings this together well. He says, Faith and obedience should not be sundered or split apart, as if Christians could have the former without the latter. Christians cannot have the former without the latter. And what that means is that a life of disobedience to the Word of God reveals itself to be a life of of unbelief. We cannot walk around saying that we believe in Christ and yet we disobey him. What Paul is doing with this language is he is showing us that when we come to faith in Christ, we come to faith in Christ as Lord. We obey him. We submit to him. And that is part and parcel of what it means to trust him for salvation. So now we come to the scope, really, of all of this. And this immediate aim of Paul's mission, this immediate aim, the obedience of faith, submission to the Lord and his gospel is, as Paul says here, notice, for all the nations or among all nations. The nations. And this should probably be taken as among all the Gentiles. It's the same word, Gentiles or nations. You could translate it either way, but it should probably be Gentiles here. I think that's probably most appropriate. The non Jewish nations. And the reason for this is that Paul, throughout the New Testament, understood his ministry to be one specifically directed to non Jews. Now we know that Paul frequently preached to Jews he would go to places and he would begin his ministry in the synagogues preaching to Jews and there were some Jews who were in the church at the church of the house churches in Rome so we know that paul would preach to Jews but paul is primarily concerned with his gospel going to the gentiles the non-jewish nations and we find this all throughout the new testament i could give you so many verses but let me just give you two here from the book of Romans. Romans eleven thirteen, 13, Paul says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 15, verse 18, he says to bring about, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. That's what his ministry is about, is about. to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And once again, the language of obedience, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. So here we are. The immediate aim back to our main point his aim looking at the immediate aim that people from every tribe tongue and nation would obey the gospel of Christ crucified and raised for sinners I want to explore here for a moment one of the implications of this that maybe you have not considered one of the implications of the fact that that the mission of God, the mission of God, which, which Paul's ministry as an apostle was, was part of and was about, that mission is one that destroys any kind of racism. Let me give you a quote here from John Stott that I think is, is very fitting. If we are to be committed to world mission, this is the mission of Paul, this is the mission of God. If we are to be committed to world mission, we will have to be liberated from all pride of race, nation, tribe, caste, and class, and acknowledge that God's gospel is for everybody, without exception and without distinction. Now, I can't look into the hearts of anyone in our congregation or anyone who might be listening to this. We have our various actions, but you know, the, the chances are that there, there is racism in some of our hearts, that if we were to go all throughout the South, in particular, the, the the heritage of racism that has existed, particularly in the South, we would find this kind of racism existing alongside of Christianity and in decades past and even today. And what we need to understand is that Uh, It really is to to be a Christian and to be a racist is is an oxymoron. That to be a Christian is to be a person who understands that the mission of God is for all the nations. It's for all peoples. So it disallows any form of racism. So if if you're harboring racism in your hearts towards any people group, towards any race, I want you to consider this. Have you really thought about what it means to be a Christian situated in the larger mission of God? As we think about these nations, as we think about these Gentiles coming to obey Christ, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Of course we do. And we remember many, many, many months ago, uh, the Lord said this to Abraham In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, uh, Abraham is alre- God is already saying to Abraham what Paul is here doing with the-, the going out of the gospel to all the nations. What is happening in the New Testament is fulfilling those promises made to Abraham. Through Christ his seed, all the families of the earth being blessed. Blessed. And then, of course, we fast forward to Genesis 49, verse 10. Listen to this language. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Remember, it was Abraham through Judah that came to David and then to Christ. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience. Listen to the language the obedience of the peoples. I can't imagine that Paul is oblivious to these passages. We know because he refers to Genesis 12, 3 elsewhere. Uh, But Paul, I think, is understanding that what he is doing in his ministry, as the obedience of faith among all the nations is, is taking place in his very ministry and beyond, that these promises made to the patriarchs in the Old Testament are now coming to fruition. We see this if we continue through the Old Testament. We see it in Isaiah 49.6. I love this verse. This is God the Father speaking to his Christ. And this is what he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, it's, it's too small of a thing that you should save Israel. I will make you. Listen to this. It's beautiful. It involves us. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then Daniel chapter 7 verse 14, this eschatological passage, this passage where God is is revealing to Daniel what's going to happen at the end of the world, and you fast forward to the end of the world, to the time of the the day of the Lord, which is already broken in, but which has not yet been consummated. And this is what the Lord says to Daniel, or this is what Daniel saw. Chapter 7, verse 14, And to him, speaking of the Christ, the servant from Isaiah, the seed from Genesis. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, here's the language of Paul here in Romans 1 verse 5, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. See the obedience languages language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And it is here in this last verse cited from Daniel that we see a nice transition. We get a perfect transition from the immediate aim of the mission to its ultimate aim. So we're looking at his aim. We've looked at his apostleship. Now we're looking at his aim. And as we consider his aim, we see two things. We see the immediate aim. And now we come to consider the ultimate aim. Aim, and here it is for the sake of his name the immediate aim is the obedience of faith among all the nations but the ultimate goal the ultimate purpose the ultimate aim of all of it is for the sake of his name Paul's ultimate goal was the glory of Christ just as Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 says to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The focus is more on the king than his kingdom. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, which we've now discussed for a couple of weeks, last week for Easter and and before that as we looked at verse 4, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, in this passage, Paul explains That God the Father has highly exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed on him, what is it? The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This name, this title, Of Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, as Paul will go on to say in Romans 10, this is the name, this is the title, Christ is Lord. And his lordship, his glorious name is magnified and proclaimed. Listen to this, his lordship, that's who he is, is magnified and proclaimed as the peoples of the earth come to him and bow. Do you see the relationship between the immediate aim of the obedience of faith among all the nations and the ultimate aim of his name as Lord being glorified? What we have, I think, here gives us two implications as we close This morning, as we finish the sermon up this morning, as we finish up uh, this portion, next week we will come back and consider part two where we'll look finally at his audience. So we've looked at his apostleship and his aim, and next week we'll come back and look at his audience. But as we finish up with this ultimate aim of Christ's name being magnified and glorified, there are at least two implications for us. First, Evangelism is about the name. Maybe you don't have very much motivation for evangelism. Maybe you find that in your own life you're kind of stagnant with regard to evangelism. You might be able to look back on a time in your life when you were excited about sharing Christ. You You had many different encounters with people where you would would tell of the good news of Jesus, but maybe that's kind of dried up in your life. And, And if you're honest, you look back and you say, I'm not really sharing my faith very much. How do you regain that motivation for evangelism? How do we cultivate as a church a motivation for evangelism? How do our gospel community groups cultivate this desire to within our various neighborhoods to see people come to faith in Christ. What is it about? What is the motivation? Well, yes, we care about lost people. Absolutely. And we care about people going to hell. This this is something that should disturb us. It is something that should, should make us cry, should make us weep, should make us long to see people come to faith in Christ. Yes, that is a motivation for evangelism but i want you to see this this morning even as paul thought about his mission the driving force behind evangelism rightly understood and rightly practiced is nothing other hear this nothing other than the glory of christ and that tells us something. It gives us a prescription for how to grow in our evangelism. If you're stagnant in evangelism, the answer is cultivate in your heart an understanding and a passion for the glory of Christ. When the glory of Christ becomes so special to you and so important to you, and as Christ grows and grows and grows, you will find an inevitable push to go out and tell other people about him because you won't be able to stand the fact that his name is not named somewhere or that there are people who do not bow to him as the majestic Lord. This is the fuel for evangelism. One final implication this morning. When we call people, when we call people, to a so-called faith that is devoid of obedience, a kind of easy believism, a kind of come and pray a prayer and just say you believe in Jesus or or profess Jesus, a kind of easy believism that is devoid of any understanding of obedience. Listen to this. We do not magnify the name of the Lord whom they are To obey when we are calling someone to trust in this Christ we are calling them to trust in this Christ as Lord to call them to anything other than 100% submission to Christ as Lord is to not magnify the name of Christ as Lord so let us practice an evangelism that magnifies his great name. And what is it? What is it that glorifies the name? That's what we should be about individually as families. That's what we should be about as a church. This was the all-consuming passion of the apostolic ministry and has been the passion of the Christian church throughout the centuries. What is it? that glorifies the name here. I want to quote John Murray. He says this, it is not an evanescent or evaporating act of emotion, but the commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and to his gospel. Let me ask you this morning, do you have in your heart, this wholehearted, hearted devotion to christ this commitment to him that he is your master he is your lord he is your everything have you come into the kingdom by way of the obedience of faith to this majestic christ that is why four corners church exists and that is why you exist. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this great mission. Father, what a privilege it is to be a part of this grand mission that has been moving forward since the very beginning of creation. What a privilege we've had to go through Genesis and now to be in Romans and to just see so quickly. We don't even have to get far into the book To see so quickly how it can be traced back to your plan at the beginning of uh, of your people, of of Israel. Going back to that genealogy that goes from Noah, from Adam to Noah, and from Noah to Abram. And then all the way forward to to Judah, and then to David, and then to Christ who is presented to us in the New Testament. Father, how, how wonderful your Bible is. How wonderful your plan is. We just give you praise. We give you glory for who you are and for what you have done through your Son. So, Father, I pray for our evangelism. I pray for our submission. I pray for our sanctification and obedience as individuals within this church. I pray for those among us who are nominal Christians. Oh, Lord, undoubtedly, there are some who, who are moving within the circles of Four Corners Church, attending services, maybe even for a long time, who are not saved, who are not converted, who have never submitted to Christ, bowed to this holy, majestic, Son of God in power, Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for them, Father. I pray that you would, by your sovereign grace, turn their hearts to you, that you would put obedience in their wills, and God, that you would work in them your glory, the glory of the name, that he would shine forth from their hearts and their lives, from each of our hearts and lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.